Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going To Podcast. My name is Stuart MacDonald and my co-host is Colin Cameron. The podcast is part of the I Was Going To Charity and each week we interview successful people to find out how they achieved their success. This information from the podcast is then edited into what we call golden nuggets and used within presentations to inform and inspire young people. This week's guest is Kenneth Pinkerton, Director of Charities and Third Sector at Prodies. Kenneth Pinkerton, thanks very much for joining us here in the I Was Going to Podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you this afternoon. Pleasure to meet you too. Kenneth, how have you found this unusual time and what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? Well, two weeks after we were into COVID, or two weeks before rather, I moved job. So I started at Brodie's on the 2nd of March last year, was in the office two weeks, most of which was induction, and then was sent home. So it's all been very strange. And I know that since then there's people who have moved jobs and had that experience doing it entirely virtually. Um, but yeah, that that has been a big challenge, getting trying to get to know people virtually. And apart from anything else, you don't know what height anybody is. Um, <laughs> so, so never thought um, about that. <laughs> getting to know the new job, getting to know people and build relationships virtually has been, I would say, biggest challenge. Um, getting to know clients, making connections, all those sort of things that you took for granted before is now uh, more challenging. How have I been keeping busy? Well, as I say, getting to know the new technology, that's been one thing. My main passion in life is music and musical theatre. So one thing that has got me through is my music and I play the piano. And one thing I did with the, the money I saved not spending during COVID, I treated myself to a new piano. So throughout COVID, I've been grateful that the piano lessons have continued, albeit virtually. And that one second delay with your piano teacher makes you sound fantastic. <laughs> and, and it hides a, a multitude of sins. So that, that's been good. And, and I've done that. And the garden as well. My husband's a very, very keen gardener. And that has been his sanctuary and to a certain extent, my sanctuary as well. So a combination of those things have got me through COVID. It's been a peculiar time, uh, Kenneth, it really has. And I've said this a few times, but it is amazing. Um, we, we, we interviewed Ricky Nickel um, a number of months ago now, but uh, he pointed out if COVID had actually occurred in the manner in which it has over the last 24 months, if it had occurred 30 years ago, and we hadn't had the technology that we've got now, it would be a different picture that we'd be painting. We, we almost take it for granted having Teams and Zoom. And as much as you do miss that tactility of meeting someone and being able to read someone's body language, it's incredible that we've got the ability now to be able to do this. And from a personal perspective, I know that Colin's the same, uh, been able to have the technology to speak to my daughter who's out in uh, uh, Australia, it's been a godsend to be able to, to, to keep in touch over this period of time that, that we've got that technology. So it's it's been a, a strange, peculiar time, but uh, we've been very fortunate in many respects having the technology. Absolutely. And when I think back to 30 years ago, I would have just started in the law. And when you think about how you used to buy a house, 
you, you used to physically take the cheque to somebody else's office and collect the keys as you handed yeah. over the cheque. Yeah. And that, how how we would have navigated through all that, I think uh, transfers, backs transfers were still sort of, oh, that's really, that's really modern, really fresh. Can we, how do we do that? And everybody <laughs> footed about for half an hour working out how to do it. But the practicalities um, of how we used to work, it would have been such a challenge. I get the point, Kenneth, but um, you guys normally, uh, from a legal perspective in your profession, need documentation. So I think uh, in my own experience of having to get legal services, it was always you had to initial every page and make the final signature on the, the documents, etc. Um, and I've had to do a few things uh, using uh, legal services during the pandemic. And it's amazing how accepting now electronic signatures uh, and different ways of documenting things have suddenly used, used to be like you would never be able to get past having physical paper. Uh, it's certainly in a legal matter, but now it's just the door is completely open. It's, in, it's interesting because so, legal services, I don't think you guys saw any slowdown in your market. If anything, there was, you know, you guys uh, can get both ends of the economic spectrum. The things are bad. A lot of people are trying to rationalise. The things are good. A lot of people are trying to acquire. So you're, you're involved in all aspects of the economic cycle. So, but I, I was amazed uh, how much uh, change there was in the legal services market about accepting uh, non-physical paper documents for records. Now, it was just dramatic change, as far as I can see it. Absolutely. And um, there's, uh, I, I don't know what the exact figure is, but there's a, a number of years quoted um, that from a digital perspective we've moved forward. I think it's something like in, in the pandemic in 18, 20 months, we've moved forward something like 20 years. And as you say, at, at the start, um, there were a lot of people had concerns that they didn't have a will, they didn't have powers of attorney. And there were big challenges about, you know, how do we get these signed? How do we actually do this? And right down to the boring stuff, like confirming somebody's identity. I've got to the stage that, you, you know, you had the passport email through to you, and then you had to have the meeting with somebody and they held up the passport and you held up the bit of paper that you have and you were right, they are who they say you are. But the whole electronic signatures, definitely much more accepting. To a certain extent, it's dragged a lot of dinosaurs in the legal profession, <laughs> you know, out of the prehistoric age and, and forced them to come up to date. Yeah. And the amount we have all our files electronically now. And I must admit, I've, I hardly have my printer on now. I've now got much better at reading on the screen. I do find it more challenging, but reading mm. on the screen as opposed to printing a, a 20 page document out and, you know, killing a twig for the whole conservation part. Uh, although, although you need it for your passenger locator form if we want to go anywhere. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Kenneth, we want to move away from the COVID. We want to find out a wee bit more about yourself. And you were born and educated in Scotland, I believe. And I really just wanted to find out a wee bit more about your education. Did you enjoy your education? So I was born and educated in Cumbernauld, not far from Glasgow. So one of the, the new towns as it was, a bit of a concrete jungle, but it, it did me no harm. So I had a standard uh, 
what I would say a standard comprehensive education, went to local primary school and then to, to Cumbernauld High School. Um, and it, to put it in perspective, at Cumbernauld High School, when I was you know, thinking about what I wanted to do by way of a career at that point in time, there were only five people a year coming out that went to university. So, a, you know, a small percentage of people and it was basic. I was fortunate. I was I was bright. Um, but if, if you were in that position and you put your paw up and said, I want to go to university and you had the ability, there, there wasn't much guidance about. And I ended up in the law. Um, you guys might remember it. I don't suppose many people uh, listening will remember it, but there was a, a programme on called Petricelli, which was about <laughs> a lawyer. And he put 10 bricks on this house that he was building every night. And I remember just watching that TV programme thinking, I'll, I'll be a lawyer. And I went to school and, and it was, what do you want to do? I, went, I want to be a lawyer. And nobody actually ever stopped me and said, are you sure that's what you want to do? Um, and at the same time, I had got this passion for going on the stage. But I realised almost not too late, you never realise anything too late, but I was already on a track to be a lawyer. And when I said things like, I want to go on the stage, I want to sing, people were like, but don't be daft, you're bright. Get your, get your education first. And I suppose with hindsight now, and if anybody says to me, um, you know, that they've got a particular passion. My view now is follow your passion first. If I was to say, I mean, my mum and dad were horrified at the thought that I was going to throw up a really good career for the sake of, you know, you don't know what your luck is. Um, but I would say to people now, follow your passion first. You can always get, you can go back now and get a degree at any point in time. But if you're going into something like musical theatre or theatre that, you know, age is important, no matter what you say, discrimination and all the rest of it. If you're going into sing, dance and act somewhere, there's always somebody coming behind you who's slightly who's slightly younger. So I would always say that, you know, follow your passion first and yeah, have a backup plan. Um, but I, I would have, if I was doing things again, that would be one thing I would slightly do different. I think I would have fought to go to drama college first and see how that turned out. Well, I could give a positive story out of that one, just to compare <laughs> uh, with what you're saying, Kenneth. Uh, my middle daughter, Julie, uh, was a, a British gymnast, actually. She competed yeah. at international level, but she loved Cirque du Soleil. And for few years before that she had been absolutely a fan of it and following it and then the scouts from Sutton Silly they they sought her out and she was only halfway through her A-levels we were living in England at that point in time and she got uh, a job she got a contract offer with Sutton Silly for a, a global travelling tour on one of the shows with them um, and I sat down and I, actually I was changing jobs at the same time. I was moving to Barclays in London and I sat down with them in the kitchen because for my wife and I, it was a big decision. Exactly what you're saying. We are trained into, oh, you have to do your A-levels, your hires. Oh, you have to then go as far as you can at university. But here was this left of field 
situation where it was an absolute passion for her. It was going to extend her gymnastics expertise because she was a professional at that stage. And it was going to give her something that was, she was passionate about. So we made a huge decision to let her go. Uh, and I can remember because it was heartbreaking for us to even take her to Manchester Airport to send her to Montreal in Canada where the headquarters was. But we did it. Um, and we never looked back. And she's got a key on it now. And she's got her own business. She's settled in Sydney, same place where Stuart, his daughter is. So it's possible. And, and, and to Stuart's point, you know, we, we have this trait of the culture that were brought in, in up in Scotland that you cannot be a hero more than once, otherwise you've had your shot, right? Uh, but actually, sometimes the potential in people is suppressed because of what was that culture that we were brought up in. I'm not saying it's something to blame mothers and fathers about, but it was part of the culture. And I like to think that that's changing and it will change and that we can drive a change to that thinking because the suppression of our talents are not more even realised when you go abroad. And when you, you see, you start living in a culture that's more mm -hmm. uh, extroverted and allowed to express what they can do, it's amazing what comes out of uh, people who've lived and been brought up in Scotland and suddenly they're let loose. It's amazing what they can achieve. So I, I believe in that. And uh, but that's my story, just to supplement what you're saying. And I should say, it wasn't a totally negative part of my life. I, I got my degree in law. Um, I started working and then um, I got in touch with a singing teacher. I was working in Aberdeen who had a contact in London and in my 20s, I did pursue that ambition and I had a singing teacher in London called Ian Adam, who was a very uh, famous singing teacher. He taught Elaine Page, Michael Crawford, Sarah Brightman, and he was Scottish as well. So we had um, a connection between us and in my 20s, it really helped me find myself. And, you know, I, I did go for additions and all those sorts of things. Um, but I had a fabulous time and met some really fabulous people. But I did have it in my head that, you know, if you're pursuing a dream like that, that there is a cutoff point. And I always said, try until you're 30. If you get to 30 and it doesn't happen for you, then do it as a hobby and still get something out of it. And and that's what I did. You know, I, I did okay from time to time. You got so far in additions. And at one point in time, um, Phantom of the Opera, I had got through a couple of additions and I sang on His Majesty's Theatre stage in London, which was a, a terrific experience. And I was thinking, this is it. I'm, go I'm going to get out the law. I'm going to get, I'm on my way. Um, but it wasn't to be, but I took all of that stuff that I had learned the inspirational people that I'd met. And I said, Ian Adam, he was such an inspirational person and, and getting you to believe in yourself. And that was a, that had been dented because I hadn't got that opportunity to go to drama college. And, you know, it's taking the opportunities from the people you meet. You've touched on Petrocelli, which I, I, I can remember. I'm old enough <laughs> to remember it on the, the, what was new technology then, a colour television. <laughs> but uh, what was it that you actually, you, again, you, you did talk about the theatre uh, being a, an interest to you at school. 
and law was of interest to you at school. But was there anything specific that you wanted to do? And did you discuss it in a career advisory manner at school? To be blunt, no, that guidance just wasn't available. I literally remember, you know, going to the career advisor who was a guidance teacher, as they used to have, and it was, what do you want to do? And I said, law, and it was basically, well, you'll need these subjects. So it was, well, you'll need to do Latin, English, a couple of languages and, and science. And on you went, there just wasn't that support around because of the nature of um, the school. It was a very broad cross section of um, Cumbernauld. It was just, we were just normal kids going to school. And if you were, a, if you weren't causing trouble, and you were on a path. It was just a guidance through that path. And with hindsight, I could say I, I loved maths and I was really good at maths. It was probably my best subject. And nobody ever stopped me and said, um, what about your maths? Why not do something about your maths? I was never challenged and I didn't have the wherewithal to challenge myself. Um, and I think that's I think there's there's more available now. I can't imagine that you would be able to go in and say, I want to be a lawyer, and that would be, a, oh, well, you're bright enough, off you go. Um, so I think that that's, to me, that's a good thing for now, that you would be challenged on that. Um, so that's possibly not the answer you were wanting, but that was that was my experience. It was just yeah. like, you know, on you go. And I did. And it wasn't actually until I was sitting in the, I remember first day at work and going into this office and sitting down and I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> You're like, what? What's going on here? Because there was nobody in the family. It was a, you know, dad was a worked for the council. Um, mum was a secretary in a local surveyors firm in Cumbernauld. Um, and you know, normal working class people, as you would have called them then. And there was nobody in the family who was able to say or say to me, "This is what it's like to be a lawyer," or you know, anything like that. So just sort of bridging the, the moving from school, what was your first uh, taste of employment? I suppose my first taste of employment was a paper round. I did morning, <laughs> I did mornings and evenings. So, wow. you know, I'd, I had that. And then summer jobs, of course, we always worked. Um, so I remember working in a warehouse. Uh, a stockholders in Westfield and Cumbernauld. So that was an introduction to shift work up at five o'clock in the morning, finishing at half two, um, you know, asleep at nine o'clock at night, uh, worked in a duty free shop over a summer as well and worked in an office doing clerking. So before I actually got to the lawyer's office, I'd, I'd done, I, I felt I'd done, you know, a variety of part time jobs, which Oh, you know, as they would say, builds character. Yeah, I, I think it, it it gives you that element of understanding the discipline, the mm -hmm. transition from education into those types of jobs that you've just discussed. How many years at uh, university and which university did you go to uh, to study law then? So I went to Dundee University on the Silvery Tay um, and I was there for four years. I did my ordinary degree and then the, to be a lawyer, you have to do a diploma in legal practice. Um, it was a good time. I'm, I'm not the best academic in the world. I'm, I far prefer the practical side. So um, three years was enough. I'd, I, I really wanted to get out there. And of course, I had in my head 
that I wanted to go off and do something else anyway. Um, so I had my four years at university. Which firm was it and what uh, area of law did you first practice? So I started off with a firm called Wilson and Duffus in Aberdeen, in Golden Square in Aberdeen. It was a, a small, what we would call a chamber practice. Um, there were half a dozen partners in it. So it did your um, your wills, your trusts, your you know executory when somebody passes on, how to administer their estate. There were a couple of court practitioners um, and you had your property partners as well. Um, as I say, a, a small office, I think there was probably about 30 of us in it. Uh, but yeah, that was that was my introduction to the law and it was very general. Um, I suppose from where I sit now and look back, it was what you would call low value work. But at that time, of course, <clears> I didn't know that. So you were doing your council house purchases, uh, wills and, you know, all sorts, anything that came in the door, you got it to do. Uh, to the extent I do remember being sent to an identity parade uh, for a client, the, the court partners were both engaged uh, and not able to attend. And I was a very young looking 21 year old getting sent and it was a murderer was our client or accused of murder. Uh, and that that ranked as one of my most terrifying experiences ever been been put in a cell with a man who had been uh, accused of, of murder. So that was, that was quite an experience, I have to say, but he was very nice to me. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, so that, I mean, it was a, a very traineeship, you would say. You moved from that small practice and then developed uh, your, your skills within law. What, what was your next stage, Kenneth? So my next stage was coming back down to Edinburgh, or not back down to Edinburgh, but back down to the Central Belt um, from Aberdeen. Uh, my father had passed away. Mum needed a bit more support. So I decided it's Edinburgh or Glasgow, get yourself back near and home. And I was fortunate enough then to be, uh, there was a job available uh, at Turk and Connell Slusters uh, in Edinburgh, and but it was looking for a more specialised role, and it was really focusing on the trusts and private client work and wills and tax planning, that sort of side of thing. So I took that job. It was a step up for me because you went from doing very general business to really much more specialised stuff. Um, if I'm honest, I blagged my way through the interview and then got to the desk and thought, yeah, this is it. I'm really going to have to get my head down here and work hard and develop the business uh, that was, you know, put in front of me. And uh, I, knew, I remember my first day in the office and was getting shown round. And I had come from a couple of dusty firms in Aberdeen in old fashioned buildings and getting shown round and uh, I was I was amazed. There were people who did things like photocopying for you. And I had come from somewhere that you photocopied and coloured it in yourself if you were doing plans. Uh, and when we got to a certain point, I thought, if they show me toilets that are both for men and women, I'm an Ali McBeal. <laughs> <laughs> Which your your listeners won't know either what that is, but that was, you know, the American leader. I thought you were gonna mention carbon paper there as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, so but it, so it was it was a step up. It was a it was a big change for me. Um and I was glad of the opportunity uh for that. So uh yeah, so and that really was, as I say, a gear change 
into uh, far more specialised work, far more complex work and a, a mind shift. And it was also my introduction to charity law, which is where I've ended up. So and, and I had gone with this broad based uh, skill set and didn't really have much of a focus on do I want to do, you know, property work? Do I want to do tax work? What do I want to do? And I have to say my career has always been a bit, I've never been focused enough to say that's what I want to do and I'll aim for that. And my niece, uh, she yeah. is also a lawyer and she had asked me for advice when she was uh, starting out to look for a job and she had ideas then she wanted to go to Brussels. And of course, I was then in the fortunate position to be able to say to her, if you want if you know in your heart that that's what you want to do, you have to start planning now. So you have to identify the firm that will get you there now. Don't waste any time. Just put yourself on a path and aim for it. And of course, I, I sort of felt really privileged because I hadn't had somebody that was able to give me that advice. I'm just interested as well. These are what you're describing now, these formative career years. Uh, you know, suddenly you realising the scale of the industry you're in. I think uh, people who are not in the legal profession, I only know a little snippet of it, having worked a lot with uh, law firms and the banking side especially. But uh, my daughter, of course, is a property solicitor. And so she was explaining to me how a business worked uh, in a law firm. But I think people who are not in the law profession, so if these young ones who might not know what it is to be a lawyer, get this impression that it's all about the law and the courts and all the rest of it. Uh, but when I got the insight from my daughter who had to do some of her training contract, was involved in liaising with barristers in the, the court side, that, the glamour side that the television paints the picture of isn't all that it's cut out to be. And actually... Um, that's more enjoyable because uh, on the legal services side, because when you actually interact with lots of markets and businesses and other dimensions and individuals as well as organisations, it's a much broader um, profession than the outside looking in would know. And uh, so, and I think the options are huge, and it's uh, it's something that's not going to go out of date. It's always going to be required. So I think there's actually a lot to actually, I would say, advocate the profession in a different way. I don't think it's as explained to young ones at that choice at early stage as as I understand it now. So I think I don't know what your opinion is. I would agree with you. And even I mean, the sort of courtroom drama type thing is a tiny, tiny part of the options that are available to you in the law. You go from everything, as you've mentioned, from banking to we've data protection lawyers, um, health and safety, myself and charity law. And even if you look at what I do, even when you're at university, there isn't a part that will deal with charity law. It, you know, it's just not, it's just not on the horizon. It's, it's a niche part and you, you would have to be pretty definite that that's an area that you want to go in. But I mean, I would say for my part in working with charities and for charities and 
people who want to do good, philanthropic people. They're tremendous people and you're meeting a huge cross section of society and people who are interested in furthering good causes. And it's almost the same in every little bit of law. But I absolutely agree with you. The, the opportunities within the law are huge. As you've just mentioned there, Kenneth, as well, that uh, you joined Brodie's and you are the director of uh, charities in third sector. Yeah. Can you tell us a wee bit more about the, the role and how this role came about? So I had been at um, a previous firm for approaching 20 years and it was fine. I was getting on, um, but then I turned 50 and I thought. You've got about 15 years left of your working life. What do you want to do? Um, I'd hit a bit of a, a ceiling where I was and I thought, right, don't sit and wait for an opportunity to come to you. Go out and make it for yourself. So I looked at the firms that were available, saw that Brodie's had um, a forward looking charities and third sector practice. And I thought, right, I'll approach them. And after a couple of conversations, I was delighted to get offered the job. Um, and at that point in time, charities and third sector practice, it hadn't it wasn't focused. And they came to me and they said, look, we really want to focus this practice. We want to give it its own definition. And we built a strategy that um, the partnership agreed to to last year to grow that part of the business. And I was delighted to uh, take on the role as head of that and um, as director of charities in third sector. Um, and that that's how it came about. So again, it was I suppose it wasn't an opportunity that was there, but I went out and I did it myself, which was really the first time in my career at 50. I decided that is what I want to do um, and I'll go out and I'll get it myself. And I, when I say get it myself, I've always believed or maybe in the past 10, 15 years, I've believed in, you know, not doing everything yourself and getting support. So I've had a coach, as it were, who I go to from time to time just to get a view from somebody who doesn't know me personally and to sometimes to give you a boost, sometimes to give you a few tips, um, but just to get that sort of unbiased opinion and to bounce ideas off of. And I've, I've always found that really valuable as well. And I still do that. Um. It's interesting as well. I think uh, culturally, we do, uh, where we come from, we do have this needing to feel that somebody else agrees with you, <laughs> if you know what <laughs> I mean. Uh, so you're looking for some sort of advocation, but uh, but that's okay. That's a, that's, a, that's a good thing in some sense. Uh, usually, for me, it used to be my dad. You know, uh, my dad was always my acid test, but he was a former HR manager, so... He was always going to tell me the, the do's and don'ts about it. But uh, but sometimes you need that independent person. So I think what you're, you're advising is a great example. So hopefully some people will listen to this. And it's amazing the amount of So I've been in um, appraisals, for example. I used to have appraisals and I would always put in my appraisal that I was investing in myself and this was what I was doing and getting, you know, personal coaching. And you would get some strange looks 
and you, you know you get well why are you doing that and you, almost as if it was a you know a downside now and my coach would always say and I, I believe it as well getting that sort of support it's a plus you know you, you can't do any more than invest in yourself and if yeah. that and that's a way of doing it and getting those nuggets like I mean one thing that I remember is that you'll you'll know it's you know just that sort of like you know it helps you be the best that you can be take mm. everything every everything that's around all the advice that's around and it just helps you make better decisions. Warren Buffy uh, yeah. quotes that uh, just the best investment he's ever made is within himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think modern organisations now are much more aware. Essentially, the people who are at the top of an organisation, they've got a lot of responsibility. You have to make sure that you're doing some level of screening. You've not got a nut job up there doing <laughs> some daft stuff. <laughs> But also, but at the same time, some of them have got highly stressful jobs and they might just be absorbing it. So uh, the, the stress that's, that comes with it and don't, and don't realise what they're doing to themselves. So I think, you know, the, the sort of organisational science and, and behavioural science uh, specialists now have realised that you need to provide additional support for people who are carrying large responsible jobs like that. So I think it's becoming much more aware now. So even smaller organisations are now learning about all of this, you know, the, the whole uh, emotional quotient uh, assessment of people as well as your intelligence. All of that is now becoming much more aware and more accepted. Um, you know, I think my early part of my career, I never felt that you had all of that to rely on. It took a kind of real foresight type organisation way back in the, the 80s, 90s for me, it would be a really out, outlier organisation that would take on something like that. But now it's becoming more, I think, more uh, acceptable and more recommended. So I'm, I'm pleased to, to hear that. And the good thing as well is that, you know, it's not just uh, for people who've got problems, it's also for people ongoing management of your situation. I think that's a good thing. So it's a good example, Kenneth. And I also used it for um, managing other people and relationships with other people. Mm. And it taught me things like, you know, everybody doesn't do it how you do it. So, and it's, you know, everybody has a different way of working. Everybody has a different way of thinking. And when you get your head around that, and a a phrase that sticks in my head, you know, sometimes people are, are just doing the best that they can do with what they've got. So don't you get yourself hung up on other people's challenges. Just you keep doing the best and support the people and put you, putting yourself in their shoes as well. So when mm. you know when you're looking at a younger lawyer's work or a trainee's work and you're getting frustrated, just reminding yourself, put yourself in their shoes, and then you know you're you're generally not as critical as you would have been because you know the challenges that they're up against and they don't have the level of knowledge that you have. Mm-hmm. And see when you think about, um, I'm, I'm interested in opinion, but you can reserve which way you answer this <laughs> one. But uh, legislators at the moment, right? So here we are in the pandemic, we've got all sorts of economic challenges. You've got legislators trying to almost control where they can, everyday life decisions 
uh, everyday life risks that we have to take. What, what's your opinion of what's going on with, uh, what I would say, the more learned legislators that are running these countries at the moment? What's your view? Um, I think that there is a balance to be struck and they are trying their best to strike the right balance, but I do think they're in a lose-lose situation because you will never please everybody all of the time. Um, I'm of the view that as individuals, we have to take responsibility for what's going on round about us. Um, and it is very challenging just now, but I'm not sure that the legislators are making the best job of it, to be, to be perfectly honest. So, for example, I remember when the the vaccination programme came out at first, I was thinking, why aren't we doing it 24-7? When we were all really scared pre-first vaccination, I thought if I had an appointment at half past two in the morning out at Edinburgh Airport, I would have got there. And I appreciate a lot of that is down to manpower. But the situation we find ourselves in now with Omicron, it's almost at that. It's absolutely all hands in deck. And I don't think we had to be here. So um, without being too critical, I do think there's a bit of um, the legislators and the parliaments are in a lose-lose situation. In hindsight, a wonderful thing, uh, but there were certain things. And for example, the vaccinations, I got my booster down in Ocean Terminal. It was a walk-in. I was going down to London, just went down on the off chance, got it, um, and then it sort of closed and it became appointments only. A few months ago uh, now, Tom Hunter's foundation uh, came up with a report asking to introduce and increase a debate with regards to how we could reduce poverty whilst increase the economy. And I think that's become more of a debate now that we've found that it's not a six-month pandemic. Two years later, we're still in the pandemic and we have a, a significant issue. And I just wondered that what you would add to a debate like that, uh, Kenneth. Studies show that Scotland is the most generous country within the UK. We need, there, there is a lot of work getting done. For example, I'm a trustee at Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations, SCVO, and I think poverty has got right to the top of the agenda. That matched with the National Care Service seem to be the two prominent aspirations. Um, there's a lot of charities out there doing an awful lot of good work. Um, but things like the raising the national living wage, all of those things help to lift charities, well, lift people out of poverty. And I think it's one of these things that we are just going to have to keep banging that drum and make sure it stays at the top of the agenda. There's, there's no other thing that, that we can do. And it means lobbying Parliament um, and, yeah, and the, the social media and all the rest of it. You've got charities like I saw um, Social Bite today on social media. They were saying if your Christmas party has been cancelled, then think about buying forward a meal for a homeless person and all these sorts of things. Um, 
I wouldn't say that cum cumulatively, if you pull all those sort of little things together, it'll make the difference. The difference is, as as we know, I mean, speaking about COVID, they have to come from the top. They have to be led. So there has to be some sort of um, support from the government. Kenneth, I, I, I'm curious also, uh, just going back to your own career, you must have had many career highlights and lowlights. I just wondered if there was any that you could maybe uh, tell us about. Career highlight, apart from getting my new job. I've had some <laughs> interesting situations. I remember, you might remember when uh, the pandas were coming to Edinburgh Zoo and there was a big fuss about uh, the pandas so much so that the membership forced an EGM and I hadn't been doing charity law that long but the EGM was called uh, for an evening when I was the only person who could go to the EGM on behalf of the zoo um, and in Murrayfield because so many people were wanting, so many members were wanting to attend. I think it was about four or five hundred people. And I was sat at the top table next to to the president who um, was blind. And he sort of, before we started, he said, he leaned over to me and went, now you're my eyes. And throughout the meeting, I had to direct him as to what was happening and who was asking the questions and that was that was possibly ranks as uh the scariest rather than the most interesting um but it, it was certainly a highlight and i learned a lot the the thing that i learned most about that is um if you're actually put on the spot in public be very careful what you say and be very careful uh because once it's out your mouth you can't take it back uh and so that from a learning curve point of view that was a highlight the on a learning point um the as i mentioned at the start one of the things that's got me through the pandemic has been learning the piano yeah. and i think it's really important to have something that allows you to switch off your day job particularly just now because i think there's a lot of us we're increasing the hours that we're spending at our work with perhaps not the same increase in productivity and to be able to go and do something entirely different and use a different part of your brain is such an important thing to do and to have. The other thing that you've discussed, uh, you've mentioned a couple of people that uh, have inspired you and I just wondered if, if there was any literature that's inspired you as well, any books that are particularly something that you would have lent on uh, throughout your career or life? Well, you say books, I say musicals, right. because they are, as I say, that that's my passion. And, you know, working with my coach, she would say things like, you know, like if you're going into an interview, if you're getting an, if you're challenged and, you know, feeling a bit low, what is it that you would focus on? And one of my, uh, I mean, it's probably not politically correct, but the show that inspired me most was Evita. And it was just this idea of somebody who came from nowhere and achieved greatness. 
and and how she got there and the music uh of that is something that I return to because it's got drive and there's certain songs that i have that um i connect with and if for example um in the past if i was going into an exam or what have you i would listen to some of the music and it you know that's that's my thing it's it's songs and music as opposed to uh literature i read all day not the best reader in the world <laughs> the, line, the line page though was outstanding as well in that show she was incredible yeah, yeah absolutely and as um having stood in the same room at the same piano that she got taught at um you know that was enough for me right. you'll be pleased to know kenneth that uh, this is the very last question and it's one that we ask all our guests what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given and what piece of advice would you pass on to the next generation i think the best piece of advice i've been given comes from my coach and that is to be your true self and there's a lot of that is said a lot now um, and as I've hinted at through I've not hinted at as I've said you know I'm married I'm I'm gay and I went through my 20s and I actually thought if my employers find out that I'm gay I'll lose my job and I did actually believe that and it was amazing that 15 years after that when I get married I get given the same presentation for getting married as everybody else from and in the workplace and at Brodie's there's a pride network which is for the LGBT plus uh, members of staff and it's really interesting to hear how things have shifted and that nobody thinks that if somebody finds out that they're gay or transgender or transsexual that they will lose their job and you know from that point alone and me having the confidence to sort of be on this podcast and quite happily say you know I'm gay and I'm married to a man and speak about my husband that in itself gives me um you know confidence and I in that pride network I've said to colleagues junior colleagues one of the concerns is how do you bring that into a conversation and I'll say well you, sometimes you just have to take a deep breath and say it and just get it in because the more it's introduced naturally the more it becomes natural and the more accepting it will be um, and I, I think that is the best piece of information that you can hand on to somebody to be your true self and be true to yourself. Yeah what you mm -hmm. just explained it really does so well done. Well yeah. And Kenneth, thanks very much for your uh, time this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you on the I Was Going to Podcast. Pleasure for me as well. Nice to meet you both. Yeah, well done. Thanks, thanks, Kenneth. Thanks so much.